Nice to see you. <clears throat> a couple things you might be interested in. I'll tell you about Brother Chuck's situation. He had his surgery on his foot on Monday. It seems to have gone quite well so that he was able to be discharged and go home on Tuesday. He had quite a good deal of pain initially, but uh, the pain has gone down wonderfully so. He's not free of it, but it was much more intense than it now is. He is able to uh, get out of bed on a walker and, and uh, do a few things, but he cannot put any weight on the leg at this particular time. So his number one challenge, he says he's bored, which is amazing to me, because to me, this would be like permission to do nothing. I would just milk it. I'd be watching junk TV all day long. I'd be calling out to my wife, I, I think I need a little more ice cream. I mean, I'd be milking it, and you, you know, you'd only get a chance to do this, and Potato chips, I think. It, those potato chips make my throat feel better. I need more. I mean, I would just be milking it like crazy. And he's, uh, he wants to get back to stuff. So he'll be with us in a few weeks. He's conducting church business from home. He's quite coherent and able to do that on the phone and have some visits and so on. So in many respects, he's doing well. He has a visit with the doctor coming up next to determine whether he'll be ready for a hard cast. They're waiting for the swelling to go down because you can't put a cast on until that happens. And he'll have a series of different casts over the next few months until the time when he could actually put weight on his foot and begin physical therapy. Uh, In addition to this, uh, you know, he's still challenged by the cancer diagnosis. His prostate was successfully removed But in the course of so doing, they found some isolated uh, cancerous cells that they're quite concerned about. So he's on a regimen of shots for two years, one every six months, and they have rough side effects. They're quite strong but necessary. They have side effects, one of which is I think it diminishes one's bone uh, density. So he has to have a series of shots to counteract that, which he will begin calcium or something like that. Um, And then after a few months, in addition, uh, they will start him on radiation therapy. It's a little too early after this surgery to start that, but that's that's the situation. Maureen is not here, is she? Okay, good. Um, I mean, not good, but um, Maureen is doing really well, remarkably well. Uh, She's quite healthy and um, the infections that she has seem seems to be under control now, which is so good because now she's uh, got her hands full with a guy who's not a good patient at all. Man, what could I tell you? Anyway, so um, by God's grace, she's doing really, really well and able to cater to his every need. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, so please continue to pray for Brother Chuck and uh, for Miss Maureen, wonderful, wonderful couple. And uh, they're really trusting God through all this. They're a tremendous testimony to me personally uh, to see that they don't feel one bit abandoned by God or that he took a vacation or anything like that. They know he's up to good things on their behalf. Their relationship is so wonderfully solid with one another. And they're really 
have drawn even closer to the Lord through all this, which is so good to see. So anyway, please continue to pray. We got a letter this week from the Crisis Pregnancy Center closest to us on Beamer and Scarsdale. The church supports a few crisis pregnancy centers. This one in particular has been undertaken by our class. You know those baby bottles that we distribute once a year and you graciously put coins in it and so on? So the director of the Crisis Pregnancy Center sent this uh, thank you note and indicated that we have donated to them $2,300 which is quite wonderful. That's just in baby bottle, spare change. So really, really, really great. They they make fantastic use of that particular contribution and are very grateful. So thanks once again for being so generous. Uh, you heard from Jeff with the Gideons. Um, I asked him how we could assist him with his expenses and coming here and all the rest and just show our appreciation And he said it's not necessary, but if you want to, you can make a donation to the Gideons with which every penny will go to uh, the purchase of new Bibles, which they will distribute. Well, we have Gideons here in the church, and our uh, church financial department has approved a gift on your behalf, which we will give to the local Gideons with which they will use it to buy more New Testaments and so on that they can distribute. So... um, That's a very, very good thing, a very fine organization. All right, there you have it. We are in Hebrews. And we have mentioned to you that a good way to look at Hebrews is to call it the letter of better because the theme of the writer is to make the case that Jesus is far better than angels, prophets, even Moses, And that he ushered in a far better new covenant and all the rest. And so uh, more of that will proceed here in this text, Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, before we kind of get into it, uh, I want to mention to you that um, the world is filled with many, many religions, which are quite distinct one from another in various ways, but they all have in common... Uh, certain things, one of which is this. Every world religious group, every faith community seems to have a building, an architectural structure to which they attribute almost a quality of holiness. It's the gathering place for the worship of whoever the deity is of that religion and so on. And so that's what all the different world's religions have in common. For instance, Here is an architectural feature you may be familiar with. (coughs) It's called the Dome of the Rock, and it is a very important building uh, for Islamic people. In Islam, this is the third holiest site next to Mecca and Medina, both in Saudi Arabia. This site is the third holiest because it is thought that Muhammad visited here. This is located in Jerusalem. It's thought that Muhammad visited here and then mounted a very special horse on which he was resurrected into heaven. As a result, this site is very important to Muslim people. We have no, by the way, no historical record at all that Muhammad was ever even in Jerusalem. But all right, this is part of the thinking. So underneath this building is a rock It's part of the bedrock, 
And it's from that rock, Islamic people believe, um, Muhammad took off into heaven. This building uh, began to be built in the 600s and has required all kinds of renovation and repair, as you could imagine, ever since then, because it's subject to the elements and so on and so forth. Interestingly, on the exterior of the building in Arabic are various quotations from the Muslim holy book, the Quran. Here's one you might find interesting. O you people of the book. That's you, Christians. O you people of the book, do not be foolish. God has no son. On that building. That's a direct quotation from the Quran. You can Google it if you're one of those people. And you could simply say, what's written on the Dome of the Rock? And you will see that what I told you is true. Most of what I tell you is true. <laughs> so that's a direct uh, polemic against Christianity, you see. In fact, this Muslim holy site is elevated above a Jewish holy site and a Christian holy site on purpose. It's located on the very spot where the first and second temples mentioned in the Bible once were. The first built by Solomon, the second renovated under Herod. The second is the one in which the Lord walked and taught. They're gone. This has taken their place. This is on what was called the Temple Mount, a platform that took the weight of the temples, and now this is on that particular site. Below it is a very important and holy site to Jews called, we call it the Wailing Wall. In Israel, it would be referred to as the Western Wall. It's the Western Retaining Wall of all of the earthen works that were packed down and on which the temple once stood. It's a very holy site to Jews because it's thought to be uh, as close as you could possibly get to where the Holy of Holies was in the old days. Notice the Islamic holy site is above the Jewish holy site. A couple blocks away from this, you can walk to it, is another holy site to Christians. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It was built by the mother of Constantine named Helena. She visited the Holy Land in theory, came to convert and believe in Jesus, and built, had a church built on the site to commemorate what's thought to be the site of his crucifixion and resurrection, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's under the stewardship now of about six different Christian denominations. They do not get along. It's kind of interesting. But anyway, uh, to many Christians around the world, that's quite a holy site. And so the uh, Muslim holy site is elevated above both the Jewish holy site and the Christian holy site on purpose. Why? The Quran teaches that the people of the book... Who are the people of the book? Jews and Christians. The Jews are the people of the old book. Christians are people of the new book. And the Quran teaches that the Jews indeed were chosen by God to receive his promises. 
but they forfeited them in disobedience. So then God took the promises meant for the Jews and he gave them to the next people of the book, people of the New Testament, Christians. But the Christians proved themselves to be no better than the Jews. They too, therefore, forfeited the promises of God. So God took the promises intended for the peoples of the book, the other two worlds, monotheistic religions, Judaism and Christianity, God took those promises and now he gave them to the followers of Allah. So those who yield to Allah, by the way, that's what Islam means. It's an Arabic word which means surrender. Those who surrender to Allah through Muhammad, the chief prophet, now they inherit the promises which were forfeited by the Jews and the Christians to symbolize how Islam has superseded Judaism and Christianity. This Islamic holy place is built above the Jewish holy site and the Christian holy site. And do you see this beautiful golden dome? The dome is not an architectural feature in Islamic architecture. It's not. But what did they do? Centuries ago, they went down the block to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is covered by a dome. They had their architects and engineers measure that dome, and they designed this one so as to exceed that dome in size. So Islam is making a very clear statement and that is, God is, has forsaken the Jews and Christians, for they have forsaken him. And now his chosen people are those who follow Allah. And so that is indicated symbolically by the positioning and uh, structure of this dome of the rock. So that's interesting. Now here is another site, holy to an entirely different religious group. This is a Baha'i temple. Baha'i is an Eastern religion. It has, oh, five to six million followers worldwide. It's a conglomeration of all kinds of thoughts and thinking, peace and love and reincarnation and the whole deal. There is no sin in the Baha'i religion. It's just, you know, get together, hug each other, and usher in world peace, whatever. Anyway, this particular Baha'i temple is located in Wilmette, Illinois, which is just north. It's a suburb right north of, uh, of Chicago. You may be interested to know that one of the world's largest Baha'i temples is in Haifa, which is in Israel. Uh, say what you want to about Israel, but you dare not say it's not a democracy. Spend a half an hour there and you'll see it is. Every world religion can have its way and structure in the singular Jewish state. I'd like you to show me that degree of religious freedom in any Muslim-dominated country in the world. Show me that. Well, anyway, that's another interesting religious site. And here's, here's the third. Do you recognize this one? Anyone know what that is? What would you say? It is France. It's Notre Dame. Hey, anyone ever been there? It's beautiful, isn't it? Notre Dame. Construction on this uh, Catholic cathedral was begun in the 1100s. And it's actually continued till this day because all these beautiful buildings are still subject to decay and deterioration. During the French Revolution, 
it was destroyed quite significantly and had to be rebuilt and renovated. Uh, renovated. And then during World War II, it took some direct hits as well. In recent days, do you know there's a big fire there? Yeah. Well, they're doing the best they can. So even these magnificent, beautiful buildings, these holy sites, are just made with hands, and they're, they're not forever, are they? They're subject to decay. It, 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 this one is too. This site is a Hindu holy place. It's located in London, England. It's very ornate, very extravagant, very temporary. And here is a Buddhist holy place. You can find this one in Oahu uh, on the island of uh, Hawaii, in Hawaii. That's a Buddhist holy site. And then this one, do you recognize this one? This is a Russian Orthodox church. It's called St. Basil's. Um, I, I was there. I went there. Has, has anyone ever been there? It's in Red Square. Have you you've been there, Cecil? It's quite beautiful. What would you say? Oh, very similar. Yeah, that, that is, a, the, the, those, uh, that architecture is very typical Russian Orthodox. It's quite beautiful, very colorful. I took my son there, my youngest, Ben. He's a homicide detective now, but he used to be quite a brat and uh, <laughs> spoiled brat. When he was a teenager, he was complaining about the size of his bedroom because he said his friends have larger bedrooms. So I took him to Russia. I did, on a missions trip, sponsored by this church. We went right there, and we saw that church, and then we went in the middle of nowhere in Russia. I don't know where we were. We visited people who were so poor, yet so gracious to us as visitors. They gave us what they had, which wasn't much. We spent a couple weeks there, and we shared the gospel. My son, Ben, led uh, about 15-year-olds to the Lord during that time. And when we got back, he never complained about the size of his room again. So I found a good parenting thing. If you got an obnoxious teenage kid, take them on a missions trip. And if they remain obnoxious, leave them. <laughs> I mean, it just works like a charm. And then there's another building important to, you know, another faith group. Perhaps you're familiar with it. There you have it, folks. That's us right there. These are all different buildings representing faith groups with entirely different ideologies, what do they all have in common? They're temporary. They're subject to elements, decay, even total destruction. Wouldn't it be great, however, to have a meeting place, a gathering place uh, that was not subject to these things and that maybe even contained, uh, oh, I don't know, a kind of a high priest, who could always make intercession for his followers and who never came to an end. A kind of forever tabernacle with a forever high priest who forever was interceding on our behalf. Wouldn't that be great? Folks, we have such a one. His name is Jesus the Christ. And that's the point of Hebrews chapter 9. The writer is going to persuade people, why would you go back under a system characterized by tabernacles and temples fashioned by man, made with human hands and with an intensely temporary quality, why would you turn your back on the forever high priest, the Lord Jesus, who pierced the heavenlies and who has established a tabernacle for us 
in heaven in the very presence of Almighty God. So that's the argument that you'll see unfold here in Hebrews 9. Take a look as it begins in verse 1. I won't go verse by verse. There's a lot. I'm going to just summarize some things. But look at verse 1. Now, even the first covenant, so that's what we call the old covenant, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. The first covenant, you know, Moses received it on Mount Sinai, but he didn't only get the Ten Commandments. He also got directions for the construction of the temple and all of its furnishings because God meant to communicate something through every detail concerning the construction of the tabernacle and all that it housed And so it spoke of an earthly sanctuary. First, it was a tabernacle. And the tabernacle, well, it probably looked something like this. It was a tent. You could put it up, take it down. Israel made use of it during its 40 years of wilderness wanderings. They went from place to place. God said, this is where I'll meet with you. This is where I'll accept your sacrifice for your sin, the tabernacle. And so that was the earthly tabernacle the writer is speaking about. And in it are various furnishings which are delineated in verse 2. There was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand, the table, uh, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place, and here it is. So here's the an interior view of the tabernacle. Two veils. Here's one. Here's another. Two veils. This one. This would limit access to it from the outside. Then there was an inner or second veil. The first room here beyond the first veil is called the holy place, the holy place. And in the holy place, you have furnishings. Here's a table. It was made of gold on which is the show bread. Bread, one loaf for each of the 12 tribes of Israel right there. And then over here was the menorah or candelabra. Here's the candelabra. Solid gold, one piece, seven branches. It was a piece found both here in the tabernacle and in the temple. But there's more to it. There's a second room, so it says so in verse 3. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. Here it is, second veil. This place is the Holy of Holies. You can see it. So here's the second veil, Holy of Holies. You know what's in here? The Ark of the Covenant. Look at that. Ark of the Covenant. That's what is there. And it contained certain things, uh, not the least of which were the Ten Commandments. That's where it is. You know who could get in there? Only one person, the high priest. You know how often? Once a year, on a day called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. That's it. First, he would offer blood sacrifice for his own sin because he was not a sinless, perfect high priest. He had atoned for his own sin first. Then he would go in there and spread blood all over, offering it on behalf of the sins of the people. They would be gathered around the outskirts. They, were be, they would be quite attentive. They wondered if the high priest's offering on their behalf would be acceptable to God. They couldn't go in, however, so they listened. You know what they listened to? Bells on the hem of the high priest's garment. It was required by God. 
That way, the people outside, as long as they heard the bells, knew he's moving, he's still alive. But if things went silent, oh no, maybe he was struck dead by God. Maybe he had a heart attack. But they couldn't go in to see. They couldn't retrieve the body. It's the holy of holies reserved only for that high priest. So they would tie a rope around his ankles. And if things went silent, they would pull him out without going in. That's the way it was, you see. And so... Uh, we read about what was in it, verse 3, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding manna. Remember manna? God used this as food for the Israelites in the desert. Here's a sample of it. Also Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables or tablets of the covenant. And then in the Holy of Holies, we're told in verse 5, was the mercy seat above which were the cherubim. Here's what it looked like. It contained the Ten Commandments, solid gold. had handles so you could carry it from place to place. Cherubim, special class of angels on top of it, the mercy seat. Well, we want to know more about this, but notice what the writer says at the end of verse 5. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Why not? Because he doesn't really know. These are all earth, earthbound things fashioned by human hands. They're significant, but they're symbols only. Uh, the writer of Hebrews knew these symbols pointed to greater realities, but he couldn't speak of them now because you don't really know of these greater realities until you get there. And so he's saying these marvelous earthly symbols fulfilled their purpose And they point, however, to ultimate heavenly realities and truths. So you don't want to become unduly dependent on these buildings and rituals and things because they're passing. You want to see the one to whom they point. He's permanent. He is forever. And so uh, the writer here is trying to reach a particular group of Hebrews who he is addressing. Remember I told you, think of a room, a big assembly of Jews, and they're in three different spots. One group are believers like you and me. They accepted Jesus as their Messiah, their Savior. The one prophesied by their own prophets. They called him Yeshua. They believed on him. They came to be saved in exactly the same way you and I are. The second group were just as determined to reject Jesus. One group of Jews accepted, the other group rejected. It's no different than any church assembly today in which you have believers mixed in with non-believers. Why why are non-believers coming to church? Well, because you invited them. Or their friends or their relatives are just curious, that's all. They have yet not accepted Jesus. They're rejectors of Jesus, but there they are in the midst. So that would be the second group of Hebrews. And then the third These are ones who simply identified in some way with Christ. They had a profession, you might say, of of faith of some sort, but they never possessed him personally. They never surrendered to him. They never leaned on him as their sin substitute. They may come. They may sing the songs, even join the choir, maybe even put money in an offering plate. So there was some identification. They had a knowledge of Christ, but not a personal relationship. You have that in churches today 
as well. Now, that group is the one the writer is now addressing in particular. Why? Well, there was great persecution developing now for those who identified with Christ. And so these are beginning to think, why in the world should we undergo persecution in the name of Jesus when we don't really even wholeheartedly believe in him? And so they were being quite tempted to abandon whatever even superficial identification they had with Christ to go back under the old system of the law. Leave grace. Go back under the law. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to persuade them, oh, no, don't do it. Jesus is better. Uh, but they would argue, I, I don't know what you're talking about. We're taking some hits for naming the name of Jesus. In the old days, we had glorious stuff like this. We had this magnificent temple. We had a priesthood and a sacrificial system. And what a structure it was. This is what the temple looked like when it stood in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. You know, pilgrims would come from every direction. And no matter what direction you approach this from, whether it be north, south, east, or west, you're always going up to it in Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. Because of the topography of it all, it's on a hill, but also spiritually. It's a lofty place. This is the house of God. We'll go up to Jerusalem. And they were so excited that they would actually sing songs on the way to make the journey go quicker. And they would be called songs of ascent. They sang them as they were ascending to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. We know about this because a number of those songs are preserved for us down to this very day. They're called the Psalms. In fact, you could look at the, the uh, subtitle of a number of your psalms, and you'll see it'll say, A Song of Ascent. They sang this with great joy as they were going up to Jerusalem. And from afar, particularly as the sun shone off of this marble and gold structure, can you imagine how their hearts began to be stirred? And now these Hebrews who had that experience are comparing it to the experience of persecution and oppression because of their identification with Christ. And they're saying, this is crazy. We want the good old days. We want that old system, this beautiful building and its priesthood and all the rest. And so the writer of this letter in this chapter is trying to tell them, oh, no, I can tell you about a greater priest who granted us access to a far greater tabernacle. And that's what he talks about here in the rest of chapter 9. So verse 6, he says, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second the Holy of Holies, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. He's a human person. He's an imperfect high priest. He has to atone for his sins with blood just like anybody does. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, verse 8, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Why? Verse 9, it's a symbol for the present time. That's all it is. It's a symbol for the present time. 
It's only meant to point us to an ultimate heavenly reality, a tabernacle where the high priest doesn't have to offer up sacrifices for his own sin. He's he's Jesus. He doesn't have to continue to offer up sacrifices at all. What he did, he, he did once and for all. And you could have access even to the holy a recesses of the Father and the Son in their relationship because Jesus has torn the veil. Now you can enter into the Holy of Holies. Why do you want to go back under a system of restricted access uh, uh, run by imperfect priests just like you where sacrifices for sin never are enough? They're just temporary coverings when you can have Jesus, the high priest, who finished it all so that's his argument here you know what he's saying be careful religious people Uh, why do you put your hope in anything fashioned by man whether it be buildings or even your religion these world uh, many of these religions i mentioned to you are just fabricated by man Why do you want to entrust your eternity to buildings and systems and rituals and liturgies, which, though they may be externally attractive and beautiful, they can't do a thing for you. They can't give you access to the Holy Father on high. They can't really deal with your sins eternally. And what's more, they can't change you at all. And so it goes on to say, accordingly, End of verse 9. Both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Why? Verse 10. Since they relate only to food and drink in various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. You know what it's saying? Judaism, but any world religion. You know what they address? Only the external you. What you eat what you wear, what you drink, or what you don't drink. Rituals, laws, codes of conduct, they cannot change your heart. They can only obligate you to conform your external behaviors to the code of the religion, but it can't change your heart at all. In fact, for most people, when they leave their so-called holy place, they have no communion with their deity at all. There's no ongoing personal relationship. It's the holy place. It's the, it's the, uh, the priesthood. It's the sacraments. It's the liturgies. It's the incense. It's the this. It's not just about the Jews. It's about any of us who will settle for man-made religion and ideology and buildings, which are all passing. They only have a shelf life until the better way is revealed to us, and Jesus has done that. He's shown us the way to have access into the heavenly tabernacle. And so that's what he's talking about. He's saying, why would you be tempted to go under the old covenant or any religious system? It cannot change your heart. But the new covenant consists of God's laws inscribed on your heart. The old covenant was God's word inscribed on stone. But our hearts are as hard as that stone. We need a new covenant in which God inscribes his law on our hearts, and that's what he said he's done. Jesus has inaugurated the new covenant. I told you this a million times, but I'll do it again. It means something to me. When I was a new Christian, so new, I knew nothing. I didn't join the church yet. I wasn't baptized. I didn't know much about the Bible or anything, but I knew I was redeemed, and uh, I was playing basketball. I Told you this in an old bomber factory. 
military converted this bomber factory. They made basketball courts to keep us out of trouble is what they did. And we used to, which is kind of cool. You go in there and flick on the line. You can play basketball 24 hours a day, which is a lot of us what we did. So we went in there, and I'm from New York, and that's what we do. We play basketball. That's all we do. We steal hubcaps and play basketball. That's how we do in New York. So we're playing basketball, and basketball is like a big deal. Uh, it's, not, it's sort of a game, but it's more than that. You have to win. And so you, whatever it takes. So in the course of a game, I was getting a little lathered up, and uh, I used the Lord's name in vain. It bothered me. I didn't know why. I didn't even get it. I just felt, I don't know, disturbed. Later in the game, I did the same thing. I felt the same discomfort. And I realized, oh, my goodness, this is evidence that Jesus has moved in. He actually did. I invited him to come take control of my life, forgive my sin, take up his abode in my life. Good night, he did it. There was no preacher in the stands preaching at me about the commandment that says don't use the name of the Lord's name. I didn't know about any of this stuff. That was the very spirit of God who took up his abode, not in some temple in Jerusalem or here, there, or anywhere, in this temple. Now, why do you want to go back from that, the very presence of God in our lives? Why do you want to go back to any world religion, any ideology that cannot give you that experience? And I I stopped using the Lord's name in vain as far as I know over these 40-plus years. I haven't done it. The pattern certainly has been broken, but not by the law external to me, by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God who has inscribed his law on my heart. Can you see the difference? And so that's the argument the writer of this letter is saying to people, as tough as it may be to identify with Jesus, where are you going to go? Who has a better deal? Who has shown us the way into the heavenly sanctuary? And so the text goes on here, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Folks, you don't want to lean on anything made with hands here. It has a shelf life. You want to lean on Jesus who has ushered us into a heavenly tabernacle that doesn't have a shelf life. It's eternity. It's not of this creation. That's what it says. Now, verses 12 and on, there's more of a contrast between the old system and the new. And the writer leads us to verse 24. I love this verse. I'll put it up on the screen. Look what it says. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. No. Jesus didn't do that. Why? Which are copies of the true things. As beautiful was the tabernacle, as magnificent was the temple and all these other holy sites. They are at best copies of the true things. That's all. It's a shadow. Why do you want the shadow when you can have the substance? He didn't enter those, but into heaven itself. Listen, Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended back to heaven. He went back into heaven itself. What's he doing? Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You have a better high priest. You don't need a high priest anymore who first needs to offer up sacrifices for his own sin. You don't have a high priest who alone 
has access to the Holy of Holies. You, as a, you have a high priest who's never sinned, therefore doesn't need to atone for his own sin, therefore can surely effectively atone for yours. And you have a high priest who says to you, come with me. Come into the bosom of my father. Come into intimacy with us. Don't stand outside. <coughs> you're no... You're no outsider. I got no rope tied to my ankle as if what I'm offering on your behalf may not be accepted by God. It is. The vindication for my crucifixion was my resurrection. That was the Father's way of putting his stamp of approval of my death in your place. He didn't leave me in a grave. Good night. Don't stand out. I don't have any bells at the hem of my garment. What I did took. And now I stand in the Father's presence and you come with me because I've I got you in my hand, and the Father has me in his hand. Good night. There's no question about your standing anymore. Why do you want to go back under religion? Any, any system of morals, ethics, and all, any kind of man-made thing, beautiful though it may be in certain aspects. Someone called it the beautiful side of evil because all that religiosity is distraction from what Paul called the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Good night. I got up this morning in Pearland, Texas, and I got in a car. It's just a Ford, and I spoke to God. Now, I just dressed like this. There's nothing fancy about this. It's barely clean. There's no vestments. There's no incense. There's no nothing. It's not that I'm knocking those things. Do what you want to do. I'm just trying to tell you I really enjoy the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now, why do I want to exchange that? For all this religiosity, which, though it has beautiful aspects, is nothing but a clever distraction from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Look what he's doing. He appears now in the presence of God on our behalf. What's he doing? Well, he's interceding for us. We saw this in Hebrews 7, right? We, though we be redeemed, still sin. And boy, the accuser of the brethren takes note. He steps up to the uh, bench and he says to the father look at that one that that one who you saved you, you sinned again and the lord jesus the advocate steps up and he says father that's true he did she did but covered by my blood which that one has accepted and the father says case dismissed you're acquitted. Go free. That's what Jesus is doing right now. It says right there. He's appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. I'm not waiting for once a year to see if on the day of atonement what the high priest is offering takes. This far better high priest was accepted by the... This is my only begotten son. I am really well pleased with him. Jesus has it together. He's the real deal to me, says the father. Welcome home, son. Thanks for doing for those undeserving people what I asked you to do. Of course, I accept the finality and completeness of what you've done. When you said it is finished, I heard you, says the father, loud and clear. It is done finished. Perish the thought that they would try to add to it in any other way or go under some other crazy system when they've been set free in Christ. So it says in verse 25, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he's been manifested to put away sin. By the sacrifice of himself. 
And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, that's just true. Face it. And after this comes judgment. So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. What Jesus did, he did for white people and black people. What Jesus did, he did for Jewish people and Gentile people. What he did, he did for men and for women. What he did, he did for youngsters and oldsters. He did for poor people and rich people. There's no high priest to accomplish that. Good night, you had to go up to Jerusalem. We don't have to now. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit, so is you. I don't have a localized God anymore. I have an accessible God. He doesn't make himself available to one ethnic or racial group anymore. That stuff, that's the old covenant stuff. It's inferior. Jesus paid it all. I know we don't get along all that well here. I understand all that. I don't disturb it too much. We will be. Because every single person who leans on Jesus will gain entrance into the heavenly tabernacle and we together will worship him like never before. And we won't look around. Oh, that person's raising his hands and that person's sitting on his hands. But we're not going to be doing any of that. That's why it's heavenly. We will be engaged in undistracted worship. And we won't be saying, oh, look at that person. I didn't grow up in that person's neighborhood. And look at that. We're not going to be playing that game anymore. That's why it's heavenly. None of those human things are going to distract us at all. Now we need to be in the course of getting ready for heaven right now by tearing down the walls, you see. But we are, we're not effectively going to do it until we get into the heavenly tabernacle. And so this text says, uh, verse 28, last verse, So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again. Now look at this. Not to deal with our sins. I'll put this up here for you. Not to deal with our sins. Why not? Because our sins were dealt with the first time he came. That's right. Well, what's he going to do then the second time? But to bring salvation. To who? All who are eagerly waiting. What does that mean? Folks, if you are truly saved, then you are eagerly waiting for the second coming of your Savior. That is an evidence of your salvation. You wonder, am I saved or not? <clears throat> are you eagerly, hopefully waiting for the return of your Savior? Now, a saved per- an unsaved person ain't. I bet the last thing in the world an unsaved person wants. I want Jesus to come back. Not even close. Why? You see, the first time Jesus came, he came to wage war against sin. If you don't respond right to his first coming, you're in a heap of trouble at his second coming. But if you responded right to his first coming, you understand he won victory over sin by suffering and dying for. You don't have a thing to worry about his second coming. That's when he comes to wage war against sinners. But that's not you. You're saved. That's why it says when he comes again, he's not going to deal with our sins. He already dealt with our sins. He's going to bring, he's going to consummate salvation. He's going to complete it. And we will dwell with him forevermore. There's no restricted access. The veil has been removed. No Jewish high priest only here one day on the Jewish holiday. No, 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 no. Little old you may be mistreated by, by the world. Oh. Welcome home, good and faithful servant. That's what you get from your father. Now, why do I bring all this up? We're in a mess today. I've never seen anything like it. The virus starting in China, they say it's more fierce than the SARS thing, which took hundreds of lives, all the rest. Can I tell you something? We can't control these things. 
the Chinese doctor who first brought this to the attention of the Chinese government, he succumbed to the disease, the poor guy. We're so proud and arrogant. We think we're in control. We're not in control of a doggone virus. And then, of course, politics. I don't even know what to tell you. It's different. There's always been difference of opinion. That's the essence of a democracy. This is different. This is evil. This is a cultural war and divide. It's uh, it's unbelievable. You know what can be nothing. Nobody can do a thing about it. Vote for who you want, but be careful about putting too high an expectation of in whoever you're voting for. Nobody can change the system. Why not? Because the ones who say they're going to fix it are the ones who done broke it. That's not Democrats or Republicans. That's me. That's you. Listen, God made me in His own image, and you. What does that mean? It means he gave me a mind to understand him, a heart to love him, and a will to obey him. You see, God is personality. He has an intellectual capacity, an emotional capacity, and a volitional capacity, a mind, a heart, and a will. He gave me that equipment. He didn't give it to birds, uh, bears, rocks, and trees. Uh, We're different. We're created in the image of God. Why did God give us that equipment? So that we could have communion with him. He valued it. What did we do? Thank you, but no thank you. We take our intellectual ability, we take our affections, we take our will, and we use it not to usher us into the presence of God, but to do other things. We love the world. We use those faculties to commune with the world instead of with God. You know what God would be justified in doing? Wiping us all out. But he won't. How do I know that? The Jews. Good night. Look at the privileges he gave them, and he didn't wipe them all out. He didn't replace them. He replaced the covenant with them. He had to show them the first covenant, you prideful, arrogant people. You can't cut it by the first covenant, though it be good. And through all that, he shows us, too. We can't work our way to heaven, doggone it. You may be better than me. You probably are, but you fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, God graciously, he doesn't wipe us out. He lets us get in on the new covenant by which he changes us from the inside out. And what has changed now? In spite of what's going on in the world, where's my hopeful expectation? It's in heaven. Why? Because my sanctuary is in heaven. Because my Savior is in heaven. Because my citizenship is in heaven. This is a rough neighborhood to live in, the world. We've got to be careful. Don't succumb to cynicism, anger, disrespect, and disdain. We ought to be filled with such hope that the folks out there say, Can you please explain the hope that is in you? This is not the day to take up arms and go crazy with what's going on. This is the day to pierce the darkness with the gospel of light. That's what changed us. What do you think, we're so hot? Jesus didn't just save us from sin. He saved us from stinking thinking. I'll tell you why I am not in favor of abortion. It's not because I'm a virtuous person who studied all the issues. It's because I have the mind of Christ, the giver of life. I'll tell you why I'm in favor of traditional marriage, one man, one woman, and no other creative modifications. It's not because I'm so hot. It's because I have the mind of Christ. You see, the way to affect people is not by attacking all of these issues. You expect unregenerated behavior uh, behavior and thinking from unregenerated people. Our job is to get them regenerated. How? It's the gospel of lie. Well, I can't do that by being angry by everyone around there and stuff that's not going to work and what helps me ah this hopeful expectation i'm eagerly wait listen 
There's no prophetic event that has to take place before Jesus returns. No, I didn't tell you I know when he's returning. I'm just telling you I know it could be today. Why do I say that? Because there's no intervening prophetic event yet to take place. One of the key events is Israel back in the land in 1948. Now, think what you want to, but if you don't see that to be significant, I don't know. See, we're told prophetically that has to take place. Well, it just it took place 70 years ago. Good night. Anytime during the 70 years, Jesus could have returned. He could return now. Therefore, as oppressive and goofy as this sin-sick world is getting to be, take it easy because we should be eagerly waiting for him. Now, what does that mean? You disregard the realities of the world? You're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good? No, on the contrary. When you know we're just passing through, this race only has to be run for a little while longer. You can run it with endurance. And you have hope in Jesus Christ who's going to make all things new. And we're better. We function better as salt and light when we have a hopeful expectation of the perhaps soon return of the Lord Jesus. And even if he doesn't return in my lifetime or yours, at some point, whether it's through his return or our departure, whichever comes first, we're going home. And so the writer is saying, why would you sell out for earthly man-made anything stuff made with hands which at best is just a symbol of greater realities when you have the greater reality you have a high priest who's alive from death who won victory over the last enemy you have a high priest who has no sin of his own and therefore he could bear yours and did you had a high priest whose blood has such cleansing power it only had to be offered once not repeatedly you have a high priest who's so desirous of your company he's torn the veil and he's removed all exclusionary things so that any one of you who embraced him by faith can have full and confident access to the Father. The Son is back home with the Father. He's looking into his eyes. And Father's looking into the Son's eyes. You know who they're seeing? You! They're seeing a harvest of adopted sons and daughters of every tribe and kindred and language worldwide who will be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb fully and forever worshiping him. Good night. Our government's in a mess and the world's in a mess and all that kind of stuff. But our God reigns. He doesn't reign from Rome, Jerusalem, or Washington, D.C. He reigns from the heavenlies, and that's my home, and that's yours. I'm glad to be an American, but that's not my primary identity. My citizenship is in heaven. I'm no better than anyone as an American, but as a Christian, I sure got a better way. Jesus is the way. Folks, don't cave in. Don't compromise. So what? Get beat up for knowing Jesus. So what? The worst day with Jesus is better than the best day with all this worldly nonsense. You know that, and so do I. Let's not sell our birthright, as did Esau, for a mess of pottage. Junk. No. Our hopeful, eager expectation should be for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even so, we say, come quickly. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving us, O God, not just from sin, but from hopelessness. Thank you for an eager expectation of your return. You've kept your word about everything you have thus far told us. How will you not keep your word about coming back for us? We look for it. 
One of the evidences, oh God, that we do not belong in this place is that we're downright uncomfortable with it. We don't feel at home because it's not our ultimate home. Heaven is our home. You have implanted that reality in our lives and therefore with eager expectation. We look forward to your return or our home going, whichever comes first until that happens. Oh, God, help us to go through this world as people with inexplicable, irrational hope demanding a question. What makes you so hopeful? And then we can point them to you, the God of all hope. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that our faith that would be tested now. If it's real, we'll stand the test. We will be held onto by you and by the Father throughout eternity. Thank you so much for holding us very tightly in your grasp. And thank you for each one here who has a hopeful expectation of eternity. What an evidence of the salvation you have birthed in our lives. And for the one or two or more who don't have that hopeful expectation, oh God, I pray that one would maybe give one of us a call this week so we could get together and talk about things. These things matter. Thank you for birthing eternity in our hearts and minds. We're grateful, and we say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This we pray in your name. Amen. Hey, well, God bless you folks. Next time, we're going to do some more. (laughs) 